0: If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 45, that's where we're going to be. Genesis 45, one of the things that we've been covering is the life of Joseph. We're kind of in a little mini-series in our series on Genesis, and the mini-series is called God Meant Good. And obviously that's, that's taken from the final chapter of Genesis when Joseph gives his famous line, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So the story of Joseph is a powerful picture and narrative of the sovereignty of God and how God works all things for the good of those who love him. How he brings all of Joseph's trials, all the setbacks that he faces in his life, all together for his good purposes. Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers who are jealous of him because he receives a dream of all of his brothers, and even the sun, moon, and stars bowing before him. So Joseph is about 17 years old at the time. You can imagine what that did for his ego. So Joseph has his brothers sell him into slavery, and Joseph ends up going to Egypt. And in Egypt, he is uh, falsely accused. He's tempted in many ways, and he finally rises up to power, and God redeems him, despite all the struggles that he faces, and brings him to this point where now, as basically the second in command of all of Egypt, he's about to be reconciled with the brothers that betrayed him. And so this is a narrative, where God's good purposes, through all the confusing roundabout events of Joseph's life, are going to be Revealed. So read along with me. This is Genesis chapter 45, starting in verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be dismayed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. And there I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your, ho- and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see." that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for all the best of the land of Egypt is yours." The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. And then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of, Jacob which, of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would open up our eyes to understand this truth, that the words that we hear would remind us of your faithful character through all the ages, and that we would be amazed at the ways that you have put together all the loose ends and all the loose strands of all the trials in our life, and the promise that you will weave them together into something that is beyond what we can imagine. And we ask that you would encourage us and from your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Joseph sees his brothers, they come down to him because Joseph is preparing all of Egypt. Because he knows a famine is coming. Pharaoh, in a few chapters before, he has these dreams that Joseph interprets. and Joseph says, you're going to have seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And so during the seven years of plenty, Joseph leaves all of Egypt in storing up bread so that when the famine comes, Egypt will be the center of provision. And because Joseph's father, when he experiences the famine, sends down to Egypt bread. And they go down, and they come back up and now this is their second time coming back for more bread. And at this moment we see Joseph finally reveals his identity. He, the ruler of Egypt, is the one whom his brothers sold into slavery. And there's this amazing reconciliation between this family. And you see that Pharaoh actually blesses them and sends Joseph back to Jacob of this uh, all of this cattle, all this provision and Jacob realizes that his son, who he thought was dead, is still alive. So there are a series of reversals that God brings to bear on the life of Joseph. Unexpected reversals. And in many ways, the reason they're so unexpected is because the trials that Joseph faces are so unexpected himself. And I think in our own lives, life is incredibly than we ever imagined. Nobody could have predicted this year. Our lives have changed in many unexpected ways. And of course, whatever happens in your life. What is God doing? And Joseph cuts straight. He doesn't come up with some lofty abstract Philosophical reasoning on how God's sovereignty and humanity simply says it like this You sold me, but God sent me. You sold me into slavery. You really did do that. You sinned against me, but God sent me. God determines everything that comes to pass, but He doesn't determine everything like some detached god in a bubble in the sky with all these little dials switching around. The way that God determines things is the way an author determines the plot line of a story. God is the great author. God is the one writing the narrative. And he's bringing a story of flawed characters, a story of betrayals, a story of sin, a story of cliffhangers and plot twists to a glorious ending. And this is how we have to understand the sovereignty of God. In the Chronicles of Narnia, who kills Aslan? It's the White Witch. But it's also C.S. Lewis. And yet, we think the White Witch is a terrible, sinful person. And we call C.S. Lewis a great author. And in the same way, that's how God's sovereignty works in our lives. People make real decisions. People commit real sins. And yet, God is the author of every line. And he is the one who is weaving everything together. He's the author of all of our stories. And this is why John Calvin calls all of human history, the theater of God's glory. It's a display of the brilliant storytelling, the narrative of God played out in every one of our lives and in the history of the world. But these are not some abstract ideas. Again, this is is practical. If God is writing the story, and we're characters in the story, we have a part to play. These are marching orders. We have... A role to fulfill. But if we're going to know what role to play when the world is crazy, when everything's changing, when the fut- the future seems so uncertain, we have to know what kind of stories God tells. What are the plot lines that God weaves? And Genesis 45 shows us that there are three stories God is telling. And once we find Those plot lines, we can read ourselves into those stories and understand this is what God is doing, not just in our individual lives, but in our lives as part of the church, what he's doing to us as a people. The first plot line is that God is preserving a people. He's preserving a people. Now, this plot line begins, and all of the plot lines I'm going to talk about all draw their source from God's promises to Abraham. If you read the book of Genesis, God's promises to Abraham, that's, that's like the center. That's the foundation of the book of Genesis. And everything that happens flows out of these promises. God chooses Abraham and gives him three promises. He says, I'm going to give you a people. Those people are going to have a purpose. They're going to bless all the families of the world and I'm gonna give those people a place. He gives them a people who will bless the nations and who will also inherit a land. And Joseph's life continues the fulfillment of those promises. So when we meet Joseph, he's the, the favored son of Jacob. Joseph receives a dream, as I said earlier, And Joseph sees that he's going to be exalted over his brothers, that his brothers are going to bow before him. What's fascinating is when Joseph first receives that dream, he becomes prideful. There's a bit of arrogance when he sees it. The world's going to bow before me. You're all going to bow before me. But when that dream actually comes to pass, when he actually reveals himself to his brothers in Genesis 45, something's different. His reaction isn't pride. What does he do? He weeps. He weeps. God's plan did not change. But Joseph did. And somewhere between him receiving that dream and the fulfillment of that dream, a transformation has happened in his heart. He has realized that God's purposes are bigger than him. Bigger than just the preservation of his own life but the preservation of a people. And God is working through Joseph to preserve a people for himself, to fulfill the promise he made to Abraham. And this is a powerful moment because Joseph is able to reinterpret all of the suffering in his life through the lens of God's goodness. Can you imagine the, the bitterness he must have felt seeing his own family, his own blood who betrayed him? This is 20 years in the making. And when he finally sees them and he's in a position of power, he does not respond with bitterness, but forgiveness and mercy and love. And there's at the end of their little interaction, it says the brothers talked with him. It's a simple little line, but it's so profound. You know in family dysfunction, just just a conversation, just a cordial conversation can be the gateway to reconciliation. Just two people just talking who were at odds for years. And they're finally able to have a conversation because the bitterness has been removed. But it wouldn't have happened without God molding Joseph's character through decades of trials. And God was sovereign over every second of it. Every second of Joseph's struggles, of the sins that he was the victim of, God was the one who sent them. People committed those sins, but God was the author. And Psalm 105 is explicit about it. If you read Psalm 105, it's talking about the wondrous works of God. And Psalm 105 actually talks about Joseph's life. And it explicitly says, God sent the famine. God tested Joseph. God is the one who was behind it all for this purpose, that the works of God might be proclaimed. And we know this even in the New Testament. What does James 1 tell us? When we face trials of various kinds, what's our response? We rejoice. We patiently endure them. They are something that we need to steward because we know the outcome of those trials is that we would become perfect, lacking in nothing. In other words, God sends trials to grow us up. He wants us to be grown-up Christians. He wants us to be mature. I remember one of my friends when uh, he he was talking about how his life has changed since he's gotten married and had kids and he said that when he was single in college if you looked at the Polaroid of his life it was just a big picture of him in the center. Then he got married and then it's him and his wife and now he's got a bunch of kids and he's much smaller in the picture and you add in work and all the responsibilities he has and the friendships that he has and the community that he's a part of he starts to shrink more and more. And the whole point of this was that he recognized that part of the maturity, part of the sanctification process, part of how God grows us up is he shrinks how big we are in the picture of our own lives. He humbles us. He makes us realize it's not about us. It's not about us. That there is something Larger that God is trying to tell, a bigger story. Before God exalts Joseph and lifts him up, he humbles him. And that's the pattern we see throughout the entire Bible. God humbles, and then he lifts up. And when God takes us from point A to point B, he does more than just change our location. He transforms us to build in us Steadfastness. That's a common word in the Bible. Steadfastness simply means obedience under pressure. Obedience under pressure. Joseph is willing to obey no matter what. And that's a habit that's produced in his life. So that when the time comes, when the dream he received comes to pass. He has the character to fulfill the purpose of God. And it's not a coincidence that Adam and Joseph bookend the book of Genesis. It begins with Adam, it ends with Joseph. Adam was given a mission to multiply and to cultivate the earth, to rule the land. And he fails. But at the very end, what do we see in Genesis 50? Joseph rules well, and as a result, Israel, what? Multiplies in Egypt. So you see a glimmer of hope. You see a glimmer of hope in the life of Joseph. He rules righteously, and as a result, not only is he blessed, but who else is blessed? His family, and not only his family, but future generations. Because of his righteousness, what happens? Your your children and your children's children will be blessed. And God weaves these all together. And his brothers, they're trying to thwart this dream from happening. And in thwarting it, what do they end up doing? They end up helping it come to pass. They end up being a means through which God accomplishes his purpose to preserve people for himself. And God preserves us, right? He's gonna preserve the church. He promises to do that, but he's not gonna preserve us despite our trials. He preserves us through our trials. That's how he keeps us. He doesn't keep us in a little glass case, right? But when God wants to strengthen a church, what does he do? He sends a trial, right? He sends affliction. Maybe he even sends a pandemic. And what do we do as Christians? We receive that trial knowing who sent it. Knowing there's a purpose behind it. Knowing that he is building in us the kind of character that he wants the people that he is preserving to have. And that's that has to be our mindset when we view it. He's preserving us by Changing us, by pruning us from our idols, by, by I mean, what, what is, I mean, what's the answer? What is God doing in your life? Always, he's changing you. I mean, you can always bank on that answer. He is changing you. He is doing something in the middle of all the craziness and all the trials. But we're not passive in this. Joseph takes every assignment and he obeys, whether he's in jail or whether he's second in command to Egypt. He obeys no matter what. He obeys under pressure. And so when we receive our trials, we can either receive them with bitterness or with joy. And how we handle those trials will determine how we come out of those trials. One of the things you read in the book of Judges is that God says, I'm having all these nations attack you. I'm having you have these difficulties and trials to test you to see whether you will believe all that the Lord has commanded. And if you look in Judges, Israel doesn't do it. They choose not to receive. They choose not to humbly obey in the middle of the trial. And the results are disastrous. And so we have a part to play in this. When God sends trials, when God sends afflictions of various kinds, we rejoice knowing he's producing something in us and he's making us into the kind of people and he's preserving us to be the kind of people that reflect his character. That's what God's doing in our trials. But he's got more than just that plot line in mind. He expands beyond that, that's the second plot line. God is pursuing the nations. God is pursuing the nations. He's preserving us for a mission. For a goal. Moses, when he describes Joseph, he uses an interesting phrase. Joseph tells his brothers that he is he is like a father to Pharaoh, and that's that's put there to key us in to a connection. One of the promises that God gives to Abraham is that he's going to be the father of many nations. He's not just going to be the father of his own biological seed, but he will father many nations. Fatherhood plays a major role in the book of Genesis. Our first father, Adam, sins, and he plunges all of creation and all of his descendants into a world of death and decay. Noah is the first father after the flood, and his two sons, Shem and Ham, Shem is the father of the Israelites, the forefather of the Israelites. Ham is the forefather of the Egyptians. They have conflict and they split off. And we see the life of Jacob as a father. And now, finally, Joseph is playing this father role in Egypt. And and if you think about what Joseph is doing, Joseph is being a father of the Pharaoh. A son of Shem and a son of Ham are being reconciled. God is working through these fathers, through these families to accomplish his purpose. So there's a blessing that goes beyond just Israel to the nations, to the families of Ham. But notice how God does this. Think about this. God, to bless these Gentiles, sends an Israelite who's rejected by his own people. God sends an Israelite to be among his own people Is rejected and as a result he turns to bless gentiles joseph is a is a type or a pattern a mold of christ he's a foreshadowing of christ christ was rejected by his own and what does he do he turns and he starts to bless gentiles all of this is being foreshadowed and all of this is part of god's plan to bless the nations what is God tells Abraham, through your family, what? All the families of the world are going to be blessed. And we see that in the psalm. Psalm 86 talks about one day, not only is God going to bless the nations, but the nations are going to bless God. They're going to bring tribute to God. They're going to come from the ends of the earth to worship God. And we see that in a small form here. Joseph goes to Egypt blesses Egypt, and what does Egypt do? Pharaoh blesses Joseph's family. He sends them off with riches. Now think about, Genesis is written to the second generation of Israelites in the wilderness who have just left slavery. Their parents were slaves. So this is the second generation, and they're reading this narrative, and they're seeing Joseph bless Egypt, bless Pharaoh, work for the good of Egypt. What are they thinking? These are the people who enslaved us for 400 years. And God is showing them favor through one of our forefathers. Does God want us to bless our enemies? Well, yes. Yes. God sends Joseph to rise up in the ranks as a political figure to save Egypt, the very nation that they escaped slavery from, from a famine. And Israel themselves has to reckon with the fact that God's plan is bigger than just Israel, that God has a plan for the entire world. And it's a very public plan. we, We talk a lot in the church about how the church should not be political. And if by political you mean, you know, allied with one party or telling everyone who to vote for, right. But if by political you mean public, well, the church should be public. All right? the word politic comes from the Greek word politika, which means affairs of the cities. It means there's a public presence. Joseph is a public political figure, working within a structure, a Gentile structure, a structure outside of his faith. And he's rising up in that, and what is he doing? He's working to the glory of God. And when we think about reaching the nations, missions is a huge part of that. And not even just reaching nations, but reaching non-believers. Evangelism is a huge part of that, right? You often hear people say, You know, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. Well, it's like, no, you need to use words, right? But we don't want to get too far and think all it takes is words. How we live our lives in all the spheres of our lives matters and is part of how God is reaching the lost, how he is reaching people far from him. I want you to think about this. God gave us work and vocation before the fall. Which means our work, the things that we do, what we cultivate in this life is not primarily about evangelism. That's a part of it. But there was no need for evangelism when God was keeping the garden. There's something intrinsically good about our work. Work is how we image God into the world by extending his rule. And that's what you see Joseph doing. And that means it's a public affair. And this infuses all of our jobs and all the things that we do with deep meaning. We are demonstrating and expanding the kingdom of God in a public way. Christ is not just Lord of our hearts only, right? He's not just like Lord of our invisible country club in our heads together. No, what, he's Lord of all, right? He sits at the right hand of God, ruling over the entire world. That means that everything that we do, we do as ambassadors for Christ, not just by what we say, but by how we do our work. Martin Luther, great Protestant reformer, one of the things he says is, he he talks about the dignity of, of ordinary work. And he says, the Christian shoemaker does his duty, not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. And what's interesting is when Joseph, you know, he, he goes through all of these interesting situations in his life, right? He, uh, he exercises self-mastery over his lusts when he's tempted by Potiphar's wife. And then he learns the skill of administration when he's falsely imprisoned and he ends up helping manage the jail. And when he rises to power, he learns leadership, inspiring a nation of people to stock up on bread because a famine's coming. And what you see is that through his work, through his life, God is building into him character and competency. And his work blesses and saves the lives of many. And and he receives each of those assignments with humble obedience. And it's like, he doesn't, you know, when he's in jail and then, you know, he he gains favor and they want him to help manage jail, he doesn't go, I don't think I'm called to this. He receives the assignment with joy, knowing that the work he's doing is unto the Lord. He receives all of the assignments, no matter how menial, no matter what the world thinks of it, with joy. And Jesus even tells us that when our good works are displayed, the way we do our work, the quality of our work, the types of lives that we live in the public sphere, the world is going to glorify our Father in heaven. And our work is broader than just what we do to receive a wage. Making a home is work. Raising children, from what I've heard, is a lot of work. But these are the bedrocks of civilization. These are the bedrocks of a society. And this is how we shine the light of God's wisdom into the world. You think about in the Old Testament, Israel is meant to show the glory and the beauty of life under God's rule. And the nations are supposed to look at that and go, we want to be a part of that. We want to live under God's rule. Look how blessed you are. Look at the peace that you have. Look at the joy that you exemplify. And so what you do and how you do it is a public witness to the world because Christ's lordship is a public lordship. It's not less than evangelism, but it's more. And as we embrace the roles that God has given us in our vocation, in our work, God works through us to draw people far from him to himself. And you you know this, you know this, you know this in your life, right? We should, there should be a ripple effect of having Christians in businesses, Christians in schools, Christians in the political sphere, Christians on campus. Joseph rises to power and blesses a nation. We have a similar calling. This is not... Social gospel, this is not saying we're going to create utopia. This is simply the second commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what God is doing through us. He's pursuing the nations. And the final plot line, the final story that God tells is he's preparing a land. God is preparing a land. One of the things that you'll see in the book of Genesis is a repeated pattern of people going into Egypt and leaving with their stuff. Abraham, in Genesis 12, there's a famine, and he goes down to Egypt, and he leaves with Pharaoh's stuff. And here we see Jacob is about to go down to Egypt, and he's going to leave with Pharaoh's stuff. And In the beginning of chapter 46, God even tells him, don't be afraid of going down to Egypt, because I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. So there's this idea, go to Egypt and come out, that pattern that repeats. And when Genesis ends, what do we see? Joseph is in Egypt, he's accumulating their stuff, rising to power, Israel's growing prosperous, but they don't go out yet. It's a cliffhanger. And you flip over a page and what's the book? Exodus. It's all leading to that. Why? Because God promised Abraham a land. You're going to have this land. And he tells Jacob, don't be afraid. I'm going to fulfill that promise to Abraham. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to accomplish my purposes. But the accomplishment of those purposes happens most often after a long, long, long time of waiting. God loves cliffhangers. God in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham, I'm going to give you a nation. It's going to be, they're going to multiply more than the stars in the sky. And they're going to leave with Egypt's stuff. They're going to plunder Egypt and be prosperous. And they're also going to be slaves for 400 years. He tells them that. Four centuries of enslavement. Why? But this is, this is how God works. He builds tension into the plot. He loves putting his people between a rock and a hard place so that his deliverance is unmistakable. So that when it comes, when Pharaoh's army is pushing Israel up against the sea and they have nowhere to go, what happens? The water splits. God brings us right up to the brink before his deliverance a cliffhanger. Think about, I mean, Joseph, before he beats r- his brothers again, it takes about 20 years, maybe even more. You think about Jacob. Jacob sends his favorite son, Benjamin, his youngest son, with Judah down into Egypt. He doesn't know if they're coming back. This is the father's love for his sons. Or you think about Abraham, about to put up the knife and kill the promised son, Isaac. All these cliffhangers, all these points of tension. And at the last moment, there's a lamb in the thicket. At the last moment, Jacob finds out that Joseph is alive. At the last moment, the sea splits. And God gives them back more than they can ask or think. Right? Jacob doesn't just receive back Benjamin and Judah, but he realizes that Joseph is alive. He gives up two sons, receives back three. And it says that his spirit was revived. It's almost like a death and a resurrection. He's given new life by this good news. But we have to be patient, right? God's plan is bigger than what Joseph thought. God was saving all of Egypt, not just trying to preserve his life. God is... Is forging a nation in their slavery, so that when they come out, they will be a people set apart from God. God's project is bigger than our project, but it requires patience. You don't want to be, you know, it's like you're watching uh, people who watch crime thrillers, and like five minutes in, they're like, "That is that the killer? Is he the one?" It's like you have to what? You have to watch the movie. Right? You can't just take the, the, the freeze frame of one scene and try to extrapolate everything that comes from it. You've got to watch the movie. And God, what does he do? He, he brings, up, uh, brings us to these cliffhangers, and he says, keep going. Keep watching. Keep waiting. Keep enduring. Don't be afraid. The deliverance will come. Come. And what's fascinating is in Romans 4, the Apostle Paul, when he looks at the promise that God gives to Abraham, he says the promise to Abraham is not just a little piece of land in the Middle East. He says it's the whole world. It's all of creation. He expands the promise. And the exhortation to Jacob is the same to us. Don't be afraid right? Uh, Peter, he he calls us a a chosen people, a a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. He calls us a holy nation. He calls us a a people that are forged through our afflictions who will one day inherit the entire world, which means that this place, this world we live in, it's it's not our home, Yet, yet, but God is working something through our ordinary lives, through our trials, to accomplish his promise that his people will inherit the land, all of creation. And that means we need to have patient endurance. In Romans 15, Paul says all of the Old Testament essentially All the Old Testament was written that we might learn endurance. That we might learn endurance. How does Israel get to the promised land? One step at a time. One sometimes painful, often plodding step at a time. And the route that they take is all over the place. And oftentimes, their deliverances just prepare them for the next trial. And you know that in your own life, you never just coast. God brings you out of one trial and he prepares you and molds you for the next and the next and the next until the end when he brings us into the eternal kingdom. So our goal in our present chaos in a in a pandemic and whatever, you know, personal trials you face is to have the right perspective. Maybe our only purpose is to move the ball one yard down the field. You know, I, whenever people talk about reaching non-Christians or, 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 or discipling people, sometimes your only role is to get them from point A1 to A2, just to pass the baton down one more generation, knowing that God is bringing us To our inheritance, knowing that God is bringing us to a final goal and destination. And he doesn't just bring us along, but he's there with us. What he tells Jacob, when you go down to Egypt, don't be afraid, because I will be with you. And I will bring you out, and I will bring you to the destination that I promised. And he promises that to us as well. that He will carry us every step of the way to inherit all that he has promised. So we don't need to be afraid. We just need to patiently endure and walk one foot in front of the other. And we know the ending. We have, we have a greater confidence that God means, that what man means for evil, God means for good. When, when the Apostle Peter preaches the, the first sermon of the church at Pentecost, he says this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Whom you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And there we have it right there. God God meant it for good. This was the definite plan of God that Christ would be crucified for the sins of many. And yet, he says, Why was he crucified? Because of you, lawless men. Right? You did it. God sent it. Abraham dies. Jacob dies. Joseph dies. But only Christ conquers death. And you see the fulfillment of the pattern of Joseph and the fulfillment of all the patterns in the Old Testament. The one true Israelite, rejected by his own, who blesses the Gentiles, who is crucified by evil men and raised by the power of God. That's the story of, God ultimately tells a story of life from death. And where does it all end? You read Revelation 21 to 22. It ends with Christ as king, inheriting the world, the nations bringing tribute to him, and him dwelling with a people that he has preserved through all their trials. That's the story God's telling. And I wonder what Joseph would think if he saw everything that came, if he knew everything that we knew. I think he would say, Lord, you have done more than I could ever ask or think. And that's what God does, that's what he's going to do in our lives through all the trials preserving a people, pursuing the nations, preparing a land, and taking the tangled mess of all of the dysfunction and struggle and disappointments in our lives and bringing them to a good, glorious ending. And we will be amazed. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to believe all that you have promised. That we would find our place in the story that you're telling. That we would understand that you really are working all things for the good of those who love you. But the good is something more than we can expect. You're, you're changing us on the spot. You're transforming us through the difficulties and the trials that we face. And we don't rejoice in evil. We don't rejoice in sin. But we do rejoice in your purpose, that you are perfecting us, that you are restoring us, that you're changing us through the things that you afflict us with. Help us to receive these with obedience. Help us to steward all the trials of our life well. And we also ask that you would surprise us in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of all the unrest, the uncertainties, that you would bear fruit in our lives. And that when we look back, We can be like Joseph and understand that what man meant for evil, you meant for good. And that we can rejoice in your gracious, sovereign plan. Help us to see that and help us every day along the way as we approach our eternal inheritance. I ask all of in Jesus' name. Amen.